Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. This podcast is focused on delivery challenges from the oncology pipeline from the 2023 POD Partnership Opportunities in Drug Delivery Conference. For more information on the POD Conference, editorial, podcasts, or webinars, please visit podconference.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Thanks, everyone, uh, for attending uh, this uh, panel discussion. We, we have a lot of exciting uh, topics uh, to cover in less than 30 minutes, so we're, we're just going to dive into it. So um, my name is Ronak Savla. I'm Director of Strategic Ventures at Catalan Pharma Solutions, and uh, you know, really uh, excited for this panel. We have a great uh, uh, participants in this panel, a diversity of experience. So we're going to try to cover quite a bit. And as uh, Anne mentioned, um, you know, we want this to be a somewhat of an interactive uh, session. So if you have any questions, you know, uh, please uh, use the mic that's located here at the front of the room. But really, uh, what we wanted to cover uh, in today's uh, session is that oncology, right? That's the hot area, especially over the last 20 years, has been a revolution in terms of treatment modalities. We've moved on from small molecule chemotherapeutics, which were quite toxic to patients, uh, to targeted small molecules, you know, the imatinib, the Gleevec, uh, to biologics uh, as, as well. You know, these are the more mature modalities. And now we've start, started to see the emergence of uh, and prominence of CAR-T therapies, the amazing results in blood cancers, and especially now moving from the third, fourth, fifth line all the way to first-line therapies. And uh, as, as well as uh, antibody drug conjugates, and I was seeing uh, incredible clinical results in that, as, as well as bispecifics. So oncology is really that disease indication that leads the way for newer em emerging modalities, the gene therapies, the allogeneic cell therapies, and any sort of cell therapies beyond CAR-Ts, RNA drugs, complex biologics, and protein degraders. That's quite a bit, and we're, we're going to try to cover all of that. So, uh, so uh, you know, and not only that, uh, for these different modalities, we want to provide you guys um, the challenges, the landscape, as well as the current approaches uh, that the panelists uh, are working every day to solve these uh, challenges, as, as well as we don't want to forget about the patient and how do we integrate the patient voice into the design of these novel modalities. So um, with that, I'm going to let the panelists uh, introduce themselves because uh, they can do a way better job than I can. Uh, so you know, we'll start. OK, hi, everyone. Thanks for coming after lunch. Um, my name is Teresa Schubel. I work for Johnson & Johnson. And I head up enterprise design and innovation. And essentially, I'm a connector across the business to really help the organization solve um, really some of the most important challenges they may be facing and combination products is one of those specific areas and I'm happy to share uh, products that I've worked on products that are already in the commercial space from really the the patient and user customer perspective and really the adaptation of some of these new therapies. Hi everyone, I'm Shankar Swaminathan. I'm an associate director at the uh, Astellas uh, Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Um, I work in the technical operations CMC space. Um, I work in cell therapy, so today my role would be to touch upon some of the recent advances and challenges in the cell therapy space pertaining to oncology. And uh, my background is uh, pharmaceutical sciences. I worked in small molecules. I worked in um, nanoparticles, polymeric drug delivery systems. Um, and also GMP processing, aseptic processing, and that's where 
you know, my cell therapy, um, you know, connection is where, you know, I use the experiences that I've gained over the years in designing uh, cell therapy-based products. So looking forward to the discussion. Thank you. Hi, everyone. My name is Darren Reed. Um, in pre-pivotal drug product at Amgen, I lead a, a, I, I'm a director for a group called Synthetics Enabling Technologies, primarily, as the name says, focused on synthetics early development. I sit at the interface between discovery and development, so uh, see several hundred new molecules every year. Many of those are platform for our formulations, but more and more, they're getting more difficult. Uh, for the purposes of the panel today, I, I'm focused really on some of those multi-specifics, protax, uh, uh, modalities like that. Um, I've been working in that space for, at Amgen for uh, about 19 years now. Cool. Uh, th thank you all. And I know, Darren, you uh, mentioned a very hot area uh, within oncology, uh, the protax, uh, the multi-specifics, the hetero bifunctional degraders. Uh, so uh, really, you know, starting with you and then uh, to the other panelists, uh, for, for the new, these novel modalities that you're working on, what, what are some of the scientific and technical challenges that you face uh, developing these? And how are you addressing them? Sure, thank you. So currently, there are maybe 20 protax or so in the clinic uh, in, in the U.S. Of those 20, um, they're all, there are either a, a different modality treatment that's already available, or there's another modality that's in the clinic. And most of them are, are for oral molecules, or sorry, mo mo only about half of them are oral, and most of them are a little bit over half are for oncology, okay? But the message there is um, we're not going after the most difficult, undruggable targets that are, are, are promised by, the, by Protax. Um, and why is that? One of the reasons is, is because low permeability, low solubility, it's hard to get, get these drugs on board. So it's becoming very, very clear that while oral delivery can be the target, it's not necessarily going to be the way that we reach the most difficult, uh, most, most, most difficult uh, uh, targets that we want to. So um, there have been a number of recent papers talking about, about this challenge. And for us, one of the key areas that we're interested in, and it's appropriate for, the, for this meeting, is around long-acting injectables. Um, over the last six years or so in, in the U.S., about half the, half the uh, sub-Q formulations that have been, been developed have been uh, self-administered. So it fits very well in that space. It's likely that if we were uh, in an LAI, they could, they could uh, compete with oral molecules in that space. So LAIs are, are, are a strong interest for us. But the technical challenge, to get to your question, is um, if you look at a typical oral molecule that we're giving, those doses nowadays for a lot of these molecules are in the hundreds of milligrams. For a sub-Q, for the current technologies that we have out or that, are, that are typical, um, the top dose is 10 to 20 mg per day tops for, for say, a synthetics. Um, now, there's some interesting technologies that have been discussed here uh, 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 that potentially could go higher than that, so that, that, that's a particular interest. But really, how do we get beyond, uh, how do you achieve the promise of protax orally or sub-Q um, in something that, that, that's reasonable, a reasonable formulation? Cool. Uh, th thanks, Darren. 
and, um, and just, just harping on uh, the protax for just a, a little bit. Um, you know, for, for those uh, unfamiliar uh, with protax and the audience, uh, could you elaborate on you know, what's the sort of uh, the key features in terms of the molecule chemical design space that um, either is a challenge for oral delivery or can be overcome by the long acting? Absolutely. So. Um, Protex are just one type of multi-specific uh, at Amgen. About two-thirds of our portfolio right now are focused on multi-specific. Multi-specific is anything that's going to grab, grab one thing, say a protein of interest, and grab something else like an E3 ligase to bring those together to affect some sort of change, like degrading the protein. So you have two binding sites and you have a linker often um, in the current generation of Protax. There's, there are other things like glues that can do similar things that are smaller. But these are big, small molecules, you know, maybe around 1,000 Daltons, um, anywhere, could be less in some cases if you're, if you're really careful in your design, but it, it could be more. So uh, permeability is going to be a big challenge, solubility is a challenge. And we wrote a, uh, we actually published a paper a few years ago, uh, uh, Manuel Sanchez-Felix and Wen Zan and a few of us got together and, and projected what the challenges would be and permeability, solubility, potentially stability were all considered to be uh, problematic. Oh, thank you. Uh, another area that, uh, you know, Darren, you mentioned uh, a little bit right there was uh, long-acting injectables, uh, you know, as well as, you know, there's always the device component on body injectors uh, or even uh, intratumoral, right? It's uh, all about getting the molecule, the, the, the modality in the system uh, and to the target. So um, what are some specific challenges, uh, uh, you know, uh, Teresa, uh, as well as Darren, uh, that, that you've... Uh, for, uh, are faced with. You can start, yeah. Sure. Um, so I'll go back to the dose again. Um, as I said, uh, you know, the, the top dose you can give with a sub-Q formulation right now is less than 20 migs for most of the technologies. Um, and so that's going to be a huge challenge. If you want to, say, dose at once, once every two weeks or once a month, then um, you're going to need to have, you, you need to be engaged early in that molecule assessment stage to pick the right molecule. The clearance, and uh, Wen Zan and some of us published a nice paper a couple years ago on modulating, uh, modulating target engagement. And one of the key messages was um, you can't have a molecule that has clearance that's too high. Actually, for most LAIs, the clearance has to be it's essentially off the scale. It's, it's maybe half or tenfold less than what you would have for a typical oral molecule. So yeah, just having the, picking the right molecule early uh, for, the, for the route that you're planning to, to deliver. So thanks, that's great. So I have a few um, things that I'd like to share. So one is, um, and we talked a little bit about this preparing for our, our discussion today is, you know, there's this mantra, right? We do no harm, right? Oral delivery or sub-Q delivery is typically what we think about when we think about delivering drugs. But when you look at, and, and biologics, right? But when you look at um, different types of cancers, there may be a specific need for a directed therapy. And it's really critical that that directed therapy be um, essential to the outcomes, the clinical outcomes of that patient. So your customers are not always the patient self-administration, but it could be the, the physician who's really treating that patient and a little bit disrupting that care continuum. So 
we talked a little bit about like um, non-invasive, sort of muscle invasive bladder cancer. And there's a new product that um, Johnson & Johnson is working on. It was an acquisition um, actually outside of uh, an incubator out of MIT. And the company name is Taris. And now it's part of the J&J &J family. And it's, um, it's a polymer tube, essentially, with, uh, with holes in it that eludes drug over time. And that drug is a small molecule tablet. So it's sort of looking at the delivery modality in a slightly different way, where it's targeted and directed against the bladder wall in the shape of a pretzel. So you'll hear people talk about it like the pretzel. And it has a nitinol spine, which you would typically see in stents. It's a shape memory alloy so that you can deliver it straight into the bladder through standard of care cystoscopy, but you don't have to go in and deliver a gel in multiple applications like you would. That patient actually comes in multiple times. So there's a, a benefit to the patient there's a benefit to the physician, and um, really the goal now is to show the clinical outcomes and all of which are so far promising, but it's disruptive thinking. We don't think about taking a tablet that you would normally consider an oral dosage form, but now have this new application, and it's directed to where you need it. So you can actually increase, perhaps, right, the absorption. And another example is, targeted treatments in directly into the tumors themselves. If it's a superficial tumor or it's in a, a vital organ, right, you might have to navigate there. But these are really where you start to see the convergence of these interventional procedures and the drug formulation really having to be co-created together, all in service of the, the patient, the caregivers, right, the the surgeons who now need to have perhaps different skills and now even the pharmacies. So when we talk about, and I know you have this as a topic, but when you talk about the end-to-end -end care continuum, you sort of have to think about how do you deliver the product? Where do you store the drug? What's the requirements? Is it co-packed? Is it, is it applied on site? How frequently do they come back? And what's the value story from a reimbursement perspective? So that's a, a little bit perspective. Yeah, we'll definitely come back to the patient care continuum. Uh, but before we do that, I just wanted to, you know, the other hot area, it's cell therapies, the aut aut autologous CAR-Ts you know, that, you know, just uh, some uh, dramatic, uh, you know, really great results in he hematologic cancers. But now the field's moving, you know, uh, can we use CAR-Ts CAR or cell therapies or CAR-NKs in solid tumors? And uh, how do we expand it? And then, you know, a lot of uh, investor interest in allogeneic. So, uh, Shankar, could, could you uh, talk a little bit about the challenges there? When, when you talk about cell therapy, you know, there are, there are only challenges, you know, if you will, but... Then there are a lot of positives, and there's a lot to look forward to. So this is a fun and exciting field. Um, so as compared to the drug, you know, if I if I may, you know, give a quick primer on the cell therapy space. You know, we are trying to formulate live drugs. So these are cells which are live moieties, and we are trying to make formulations out of them. And Teresa mentioned about storage. One of the key aspects of cell therapy drug product is that they're stored in liquid nitrogen or gaseous nitrogen where you're looking at really, really cold temperatures of minus, you know, 150 and, and lower than that. So there are a lot of challenges, right? You can, you can see there are a lot of challenges. So in terms of autologous therapy, which, uh, which has been, you know, booming, and there have been several approvals over the past 10 years or so, um, there are challenges in that as well, where, you know, 
the you know the the, the, the process of effervescence, the the blood is taken from the patients. It's then taken to a nearby manufacturing facility. It's you know car construct is added to that, and then it's formulated, put in bags, cryopreserved, shipped back to the clinic, and then you know thawed, diluted if required, or then injected. So. It's a long process, so autologous itself is so complex, but allogeneic, on the other hand, is even more complex because you're looking at um, off-the-shelf therapy. So in autologous, you are interested in taking the blood from the patients, putting the cells back into the same patient. But if you think about allogeneic, it's a donor-specific or it's an iPSC-based systems, you're always looking at <clears throat> an increased scrutiny in terms of immunogenicity because you know now we are looking at a different type of cells going to different people, but in autologous, you know, it's the same cells going to the same patients, at least the immunogenicity challenges are lower. But then there are other challenges, like the patients who are uh, taking these therapies, they are refractory patients, and they have possibly gone through several lines of other first-line therapies as well, and most likely their cells are also not in a very healthy state. So when you're trying to um, take it out and, you know, put it through the expansion process, more likely they're not going to expand as they would in a normal, you know, healthy patient. And more, more often than not, in process development in the labs, that's carried out based on healthy cells. So that's a, that's a gap, and oftentimes it also leads to manufacturing failures where, you know, you expect a certain expansion fold in the cells, but you won't get it because the patients are refractory, the cells are not growing as you would have expected them to grow. But oftentimes this is a challenge because you can't really do any development on the patient itself. You, you have to develop your processes robust enough that you can anticipate what kind of cells you're going to put in the expansion process. But when you talk about allogeneic, you know, there are challenges of how do you put these cells in a while and how do you uh, cryopreserve them and thaw them and have, expect to have the same you know, effect. And with immune cells, you know, these are really, really important cells where you have, you know, in case of NK cells or even CAR T cells, these are really potent cells. And oftentimes the processes that we use for formulation and thawing, um, they have an impact on the potency of the cells. It's an overlooked area where, you know, we, we don't really consider post-thaw potency. And that's something that, that is pretty much, you know, catching up. And one of the other areas of, um, you know, challenges is the CQAs, the critical quality attributes of the cell therapy products during development, they are largely unknown uh, because uh, of their biological systems. More often than not, the mechanism of action uh, is, is kind of vague or you know, unknown. So you need to develop a, a kind of orthogonal matrix of um, analytical tests uh, that would kind of determine your CQAs, which oftentimes gets challenging because you won't really know if a cell therapy works or not unless you get into patients. The animal models are not very helpful because you're trying to put human cells in animals, so you have a xeno effect where you won't get the necessary efficacy. So that's, I think that's a big difference between the small molecules and cell therapy where, you know, you have the challenges in formulation, storage, and also lack of, you know, suitable, um, you know, um, analytical, you know, methods as well. So, you know, we, we covered uh, quite a bit, like, the scientific, the technical, the manufacturing challenges. And I mean, these challenges don't occur in a vacuum, right? And the decisions that are made uh, have downstream effects, right? It's, uh, you know, uh, do, do you guys talk with your uh, clinical colleagues of uh, you know, running clinical trials and what the logistics there are, as, as well as commercial, right? The commercial input. Uh, and the, 
is it going to work, right? Uh, uh, is a long-acting uh, long injectable or a uh, on-body injector an acceptable dose delivery uh, approach for a certain patient population? So, uh, Teresa, you mentioned the prostate cancer. But uh, really, uh, um, uh, and for oncology patients, you know, when you're going into the clinical trials, the initial indications, these are the sickest patients, right? They're the most frail patient group. And uh, the speed and develop uh, the speed of development and speed to clinic is really paramount, right? Or you want to move fast. So, uh, gonna ask the panel, like, why is the patient perspective so important in designing these novel modalities? And what are some of the best practices that you have uh, employed? Yeah, so you really start with a patient, and <clears throat> this is a piece that you don't often see is really starting with understanding the patient journey and the patient journey map from point of diagnosis to the point of therapy. Because what you find is that, and, and I think you brought this up as well, Shankar, is that you need the right diagnostic tools sometimes because they're not always available early enough to do early intervention. But you'll know that if you go from the end-to-end -end care continuum. And then you wanna make sure that the therapy targets that specific outcome. So, I would say that the patient journey maps um, are really critical and the disease journey maps in terms of treatment are critical because that'll tell you where you can really come up with some life-changing strategies for the patient care and that'll inform your clinical studies. And if you have to create new diagnostic tools, um, you may have to do that in order to enable that technology and I know and Kurt, I see him here, Kurt Sato did a great job earlier in PharmaCircle kind of talking, for PharmaCircle talking about liquid biopsies and on-site cytology when a patient comes in and you're doing a, an interventional procedure to do a diagnostic, to have the ability to detect and treat is really critical, but sometimes those tools aren't there. But if you don't start with the whole journey, you might not find those uh, opportunities to really do the end-to-end -end care continuum. And you're right, that, Ronak, that there could be fairly sick patients, but you may have to develop the techniques to measure your outcomes in the process as well to do a really robust clinical study. And, you know, there's a lot of therapeutic areas you could target, um, but direct into tumor delivery is also, I think, a way by looking at something old could be new again from a a toxicity perspective if you're really delivering it to the site that needs it. But those are gonna be more, in some cases, interventional approaches with different types of interventional surgeons when you're making these choices. Like I mentioned bladder cancer, that's you know, the urologist specifically using a cystoscope, which is the standard of care, but it could also be um, lung cancer, it could be other solid tumors, and it could be percutaneous, it could be something that's navigated to, but when you put the patient first and you think about minimally invasive approaches with the least amount of repeated interventions that might be more effective than a, a, an injection or an oral dosage form in terms of systemic toxicity in the body, that's where it becomes critical, but you also have to understand, and, and I think Ronak, you brought this up and I alluded to it, is that certain um, biologics or vaccines or like they may be active and you may have to have special storage conditions or special conditions by which to store that in order to 
prevent contamination. And this is really, I think, the future state, right? We're not quite there yet, but you're starting to see some of this more disruptive approaches that are informed by this patient end-to-end -end care continuum because it changes our paradigm a little bit. I mean, from a cell therapy perspective, I think <clears throat> we always need to keep uh, patients in mind, of course. Um, and one of the challenges, as I mentioned, is you know thawing the, the drug product itself. So the time from which the drug product is thawed till the time is injected, I think that's very critical. And, and what you do at that time, how you store them, how you store the drug product becomes really critical because some of your in vitro or in use stability studies that you do during development is kind of governed by that. So if there is a setup where the patients are not getting the drug, um, say within a couple of hours, then you know you need to build that time in your development itself because as I mentioned, cells are biological, um, you know, live drugs. So if you don't build that in, um, then you know you may not have functional cells going into patients. Although you may think, because you formulated it functionally, you may think that the cells are functional, but as they're sitting out, you know, at room temperature, these are you know like cytotoxic, really potent immune cells, and they may lose functionality. And then you know the challenges are how you build that time in, and you need to know in advance, like if you're using say, you know, a cool condition, two to eight degrees, can you do that in the clinic? If you can, then you need to build that into development. And if you need to have like a couple of hours of room temperature stability, then you need to demonstrate that in during development itself. Yeah, I agree with all that. Um, I'll just add, you know, often you hear in this space, an oncology space that, well, the patient can have one more drug. They're already on an IV or maybe they're already poor. You can just add one more. Um, as a person who's had a close family member, you know, in that situation, believe me, the, having a, having a high-quality on-body injector or having an alternative route where you can minimize the visits to the hospital, it makes a huge difference, um, avoiding, avoiding infections and those, kind of, and those kinds of uh, complications. Uh, options to go oral or sub-Q um, are very important to, in, in those environments. I feel compelled to add something for Darren because my mother had breast cancer and she went through chemotherapy and all the regimes and the on-body injector for the new Lasta product's quite brilliant from a customer insights perspective. So I know it's not typical, but this is a personal experience is that to, to understand that a chemotherapy patient has to sit through that treatment and in the absence of the on-body injector, they would have to come back the next day for another shot where they can leave with that on-body injector 27 hours, see if I got it right, 27 hours later it turns on, it delivers for about 15 minutes and it shuts itself off and the patient can remove it without having that emotional challenge of going back the next day and being reminded that they're sick. So there's a, so you talked about the, the patient, but the insight there, and it's not typical, right? Because they could have just do a shot the next day. It could have been that way. But, you know, if, if you've lived it, you appreciate, and I'll share that to thank you and others, because that's true insight innovation, and it's not just the drug product. It's now the, the, the drug, uh, the, I guess the prevention of infection, right, the white cell count, sort of replenishing the fundamental health of the patient. And if you do that journey from end to end, you'll find that insight. But in the absence of that insight and that work, you may not see all those other emotional components attached to the therapy. So I feel compelled anytime I get a chance to do a little 
Thank you. Thank you. Uh, uh, thank you both for sharing your personal stories. And uh, we've got a couple minutes left. Uh, so you know, we talked a lot about the challenges and some insights, but really uh, looking towards the future, right? Um, wh where do you see the role of these newer modalities? Uh, how are they going to evolve in the future? And sort of um, what are you excited about in terms of you know, what technologies, modalities, approaches, uh, are going to enable uh, these modality uh, uh, are, are going to enable these modalities to reach their full potential. I'll, I'll start. I, I, I think um, you know obviously there's a lot of work going on with ADCs, uh, antibody drug conjugates. A lot of work going on in that space for for Protax as well has the potential not only to target proteins but to solve some of the clearance and other issues that we have with with these kind of small molecules. You can have longer. You can get it long enough. Uh, duration in the blood to, to, to be suitable for LEIs, for example. The other area, I, th I do think, you know, you all here, we're making, we're, we're making advances in the LEI space. Um, one, one of the companies that was highlighted this morning during the uh, Farmer Circle talk was uh, Nonexa for their uh, PharmaShell technology, um, potential to go with much higher doses than we can currently uh, uh, achieve in, 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 a, in an LEI. So uh, hopefully, um, you know, we'll continue to advance these kind of technologies and they'll, they'll move uh, successfully. And, and those, are, those are the kinds of things I'm excited about. So I'll take a slightly different approach here. So, you know, oftentimes in cell therapy, it's, it's said the process is the product itself. It's, it's still a paradigm. I mean, people are debunking that, but it, I would think it's still the paradigm. So I would, I'm excited about process analytical technology to see how, you know, we can use that in cell therapy. It's pretty big in small molecules and biologicals. Hopefully, you know, we can have some advancements in cell therapy as well. So just, uh, I guess my thought is early intervention. So if we could detect early and treat early in this oncology space with the right products at the right time, I think if we could crack that code, I think we've made great progress in breast cancer and prostate cancer and other parts, but there's still more opportunity. We know lung cancer, bladder cancer, things that are more, um, how do you say, life-changing with early intervention, the outcomes from a clinical perspective could be really there for us and ripe for intervention. Cool. Uh, yeah, we're up on times. So, uh, thank you to the panelists uh, for sharing your uh, insights and experiences. And uh, th th thank you to the members of the audience for attending this session. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the pod conference, editorial, podcasts, or webcasts, please visit podconference.com. Thanks for listening.